Welcome to Book Rising, a podcast by the Radical Books Collective. Hi Naveen, I'm so excited to welcome you into the studio today for an episode of Book Rising, which is our podcast. Naveen Kishore is joining us from Kolkata, India, where he's based. Naveen is a poet, a writer, a photographer, and a theater practitioner who started Seagull Books in 1982. Seagull Books is one of the most important names in radical independent publishing today, with a very long list, over 500 books of translated works, as well as world-renowned writers and poets that include Nobel laureates and Booker Prize winners. Seagull Books publishes special series dedicated to a wide range of themes and geographic regions. This includes an Africa list, an India list, Kilambola, which showcases sub-Saharan African and French-speaking writers. And Seagull Books is actually celebrating 40 years this year in 2022. And it's such an honor to have Naveen tell us about this long, extraordinary and prolific journey. And I also don't want to forget to tell our listeners that they must also go out and buy Naveen's recently published volume of poetry called Knotted Grief. Welcome, Naveen. Thank you for joining Thank us. You. Thank you, Bhakti. Thank you for this. I'm looking forward to surprise questions. Oh, yeah. No, not, not too many surprises. I just wanted to start. I mean, it has been 40 years. Uh, do you want to tell us uh, how it all began? Because I know you didn't just wake up one morning and become a publisher. You, you were doing so many other things. Yeah, that's right. I was actually, before, before being reincarnated as a publisher, as we often are in our country, um, I was a theater lighting designer. And uh, this is that's where I started. In fact, I started my life just before a lighting designer. There was one more incarnation. I was a refrigerator hum. I was that was my first theater experience where I sat behind a refrigerator for a play called Wait Until Dark. And every time the blind protagonist opened the fridge, I would do a little cassette recorder that would hum. You sort of get that hum kind of thing. And that went on very quickly for me to starting to light plays. And as often happens in India, you don't train, you turn your hobby, your lived experience, your practice into a livelihood. And I had to jump into livelihood because my father lost his job very early. And so through college, I was doing theater and discovered people willing to pay for the lighting. And then, of course, many things happened, 12 years of um, what in those days was called being an impresario, what you now call an event manager. Mm-hmm. So I would have done everybody from Begum Akhtar and Biju Maharaj to, you know, German uh, jazz bands of 32 people to <laughs> harp players from Berlin to all kinds of things that we did. But uh, all of this then led to wanting to document because there was so much happening in that country. There was the new Indian cinema. Ray, Benigal, Sen, Adur Gopalakrishna on one hand. There mm-hmm. was Tendulkar, Al Kunshwar, Satish Ali, you know, all these wonderful Utpal Dat, Bal Sarkar. Um, so we just decided that we would start a publishing house. And the name Seagull itself came from the so called impresario unit, which had begun life from a rock concert, which had been called Seagull Empire. 
Oh. And it, so it became then a letterhead and you presented a second show and a third show. So Seagull as a word in cultural, a certain community in Calcutta existed. So it was easy to go Seagull books in that sense. Mm-hmm. And the tipping point of starting the whole thing was I had organized a grassroots theater festival where basically young people from a 40-kilometer radius in Calcutta were performing with just their bodies, no props, a kind of humanitarian, almost Grotowski-like theater. And while one of these performances was happening, uh, somebody was sketching badly, you know, the body movements. And I turned to our first about-to-be-founding editor, Shomik Banerjee, who was then a theater critic and a mentor and a... Uh, editor with Oxford University Press, and I said, you know, this needs documenting. He says, well, you know, none of the big guys will do it, maybe a niche publisher. So I said, Seagull, I had no experience, and we just literally plunged into publishing, and we were surrounded with, you know, material, because no one in the country then or now is devoted entirely to theater and cinema and fine art. So that's how it started. Mm-hmm. And wow. uh, Yeah. And on and on it went and went. Well, you know, the other significant jump happened many years later, just when after 14 years we had turned from red to black, as it were, the list was growing and we had learned the importance of strong backlists. What does red to black mean? As in red, as in your balance sheets were in the red. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, terrifying. Yeah, terrifying. So basically, the trick is that you have to grow a strong spine, a strong backlist, and it's across the list that you sell two copies, three copies, four copies, five copies. It's not about Bhakti's bestseller funding the next book by Naveen. No, it doesn't work like that. You have to keep doing it, right? And um, so, I, and this is a very European thing. You keep books in print. You don't destroy. You don't pulp. You don't remember, you keep books alive in various ways. You reinvent them, hardbacks to paperbacks and now to ebooks and ebooks to audiobooks, graphic novels. So it's it's all about what you can do for that author's creativity, that object that you call a book. Beautiful. So we learned to do all of that. And then in 2005, almost as a tongue-in-cheek, but something rankled that was. 65 years or 70 years or now 75 years because nothing's changed. We've always been told by the English-speaking West that, hey, India, you buy from us. Take what you want, but for your borders, at best, the Indian subcontinent, you can sell to Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Nepal, that kind of thing. We, some of us just said, what if, if everybody says that this is a globalized world. They love what we do in terms of our designs and editorial content. What if we were to be in London and New York? What if we only bought world rights? Because when the Americans wanted something like a Satyajit Ray from us, they wanted the world rights. But we were told, no, from us, Tony Morrison, just for India. Wow, I see. So that status quo changed when Mm -hmm. we set up Seagull Books London Limited as an independent, this is not a branch, it's just an independent publishing house based in England. But the trick, and this is something I've always had to suffer for, including the bookers of the world, which is that we said to ourselves that you will not, you were based there, you're a tax paying entity, but you will farm out your work to the 
Calcutta thing because you've got the infrastructure, the economics, the pound rupee relationship gives you an edge. So you will not spend money on architectural realities or staffing. You will travel for your relationships, use the money, be at doorsteps of authors and publishers. I remember the first, I mean, I turned automatically to Europe because I knew that there was a gap in the translation space at that time. Now it's the flavor of the season. But in 2005, 6, 7, 8, there, there was good old Dolky archives, and there was good old Barbara Epler, a few directions, and of course, there was always Amazon. And there were the university presses who were doing less and less and less of translation and trying to reinvent themselves as trade publishers. So I turned to Europe because I wanted to do translations. That's what I did in India, in a sense. And I'd grown up reading European literature. So for me, it was a literature of hope in a certain kind of way, mm-hmm. all its darkness. And so I was 100 years of start, and I landed up with a very dear French photographer, friend of mine, Alain Villon, who I had shown in Calcutta, who stayed in Paris, and he was my French-speaking contact, and we landed up at uh, Gallimard. We had an appointment. We tried to reach out to Anne Solange, who was their legendary, remains a legendary rights person, and she said, look, I'm busy, but you can meet this wonderful woman at that point who was assisting her called Florence Giri. Next thing you know, we do 22 books on the trot. Because initially, she's very confused. Why do you want Sark for Calcutta? And I said, no, 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 the world. How are you distributing? This is how we distribute. So initially, I had to write lots of letters. The estate had to approve it. I got the best translator, Chris Turner. Once that came out, that first book, Aftermath of War, looking very elegant, mm-hmm. it was like floodgates. Take wow. what you want, you know? And so she and I went on to do 22 books together before Anne Solange became family. So, you know, family, you know, so we started to meet and become friends and I always tease her about this, but there you are. <laughs> and parallelly, the German list was happening. So you were slowly beginning to be recognized. It was never great numbers. It was very courteous visibility for your authors because <laughs> Chicago University Press were excellent at this, now 12 years of them distributing us. Mm-hmm. So... You learned, therefore, that there are ways of questioning the status quo. And then there are many examples of that where your geographical location does sometimes create either a difference or a hindrance, Mm. which it shouldn't. It should always be the content. Right, right, right. And, you know, just as a response to that, I'm going to use a word that uh, I like to use a lot, which is, <laughs> which is that it, it appears to me that you were decolonizing publishing while alternatively building all these new structures without relinquishing, you know, we all grew up with loving European literature and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, this, uh, it's, it's really an exciting kind of thing to think about how you're creating these various building blocks simultaneously. Uh, and then the thing that uh, I have been wanting to ask you about is, is the school to train young publishers. When did that come about? This is something so unique that you do, this publishing program. I know mm-hmm. people who have mm-hmm. spent a few months uh, learning and sure. so on. Can you tell, tell, tell us all more? Yeah, yeah. It started in, well, it officially began in 2012. Mm-hmm. But uh, like everything else, you know, you, you speak about building blocks and decolonizing. You don't go into something with those plans, right? It's there because you're, 
you, your reading, your literature, your way of being human, all of that is a continuous state of, you know, wonderful. Uh, you can reach into your head for something and do it and respond to things like that. But you don't, you know, you're not at the barricade constantly waving a flag. Your politics is in the books and the work that you do. Mm-hmm. So these school happened because literally some six years, 2007, I think it was, or eight, uh, the Prime Minister of Norway walked into New Delhi with nine very strong women. (laughs) And two of those women made their way to Calcutta. We didn't know this was happening. We met one woman because the wonderful Goethe Institute, who have been one (laughs) pillar of support from 72, 50 years, um, she went to the Maxwell of Havan to ask about Calcutta's cultural life. And the director said, you just get into my car. I'll show you Calcutta's cultural life and brought her to us. On the way, he rang up and said, don't shut shop. And they, she came in at about 6.30 and there was the books. There was at that point a library of the arts and there were films and half a dozen of us. And at 8.30, the conversation hadn't even begun. And she said, look, 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 we take me to the Taj Hotel because I have to bring my colleague. She's missing on this. So the gallant German Martin Welde goes off with her. They go and they wake up this poor jet-lagged other woman who comes and at 1am we're having to shut our store and they, it's all hugs and kisses and we have to continue the conversation come in January, this is October uh, to Norway. So everybody does that. It's all wonderful and affectionate. In January, I'm in Norway. They invite me to Oslo. I'm staying for two weeks at the Edward Moon studio. I'm meeting publishers, theater people. It's all wonderful. And it strikes me, they're actually giving me a sense of their community, their lives, their culture. Mm-hmm. And then for three years, it's somebody on the phone from some part of it. Is this publisher in Delhi? Can we work with them in Hindi? Or is this person in worth sponsoring as a photographer. So you became an informal sounding board because you were already always on the peripheries. You were in Calcutta. You weren't Delhi. You know, everything happens around the political reality of Delhi. Mm. So they were getting counter opinions. Year four, the second woman who was woken up comes back as the ambassador. Wow. And she comes to Calcutta, has lunch and says, don't you have ideas? You've been helping us so much. We have money. Maybe we can do something together. So I gave her a 32-page document, which I must send you. It says, Norway, a work in progress. And it had all kinds of plans and ideas. Mm-hmm. One of them was the Seagull School of Publishing. And it took her another three years of behind-the-scene activity while I'd carried on with life to find the money to convince Norway that this little black hole called Calcutta uh, there is an organization that needs to do this. And they gave us very generous support for six years. And so our life's experience is shared with about 20, 30, now 40 people slowly. These are young, aspiring humans who want to be in publishing, who want to be editors, who want to be designers, who want to be entrepreneurs. And now it's almost 260 to people who are in jobs. Some of them run their own publishing houses and they come from different parts of the world. Wonderful. We've had all kinds of relationships where Googie would find somebody in Kenya and Gaitri Spivak will find money to fly the person down. It's also, and when they can't, we just pay the fee. 
And now with this online thing, suddenly, yeah. all kinds of strange people, you know, Masa Manjeste is trying to get Ethiopian aspirants and people. I work with Cambodia. I'm trying to work with Pakistan who are not allowed to come to us and now they can yeah. till they start to police us mm-hmm. online. But, um, so, yeah, so the school is, it's currently, it says January to March and you have a worldwide faculty. So Ken Visaker from Duke is doing a two-day masterclass or Christy Henry from Princeton or Alan Thomas from, or a French publisher is doing rights. And, and earlier I used to invite them. And that was also accidentally, uh, the, the byproduct was goodwill because normally who gets invited across nations? Celebrity authors, right. major publishers themselves, CEOs or Bhakti, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> but I would call the rights manager. I, I would call the worker bees because they have, they would never get onto delegations and so on and so forth. And that turned out to be really very hard for me because they would come and see us in our natural habitat. And that would strengthen bonds, which would be further strengthened at places like the Frankfurt Book Fair, which is a whole community space. And yeah, so it's... it's, it's uh, Incredible. It's, it's not all fun and games. There's a lot of stress, but because you're passionate about it, yeah. and because it's your life's work, you take that, you know, it balances it. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's not just kind of emotionally rewarding. I mean, you're actually seeing these people go out there and build their own things. I mean, that's so exciting, you know. Um, Let me ask you a little bit. I mean, you know, you have published way too many books, perhaps to, to precisely nail down. But I think if anyone can nail it down, it would be you. What is the selection criteria for Seagull books? How do you choose what to publish? Well, at the moment, the publishing process itself, I mean, the the curatorial aspect of it, right, has largely been, I'm the first point of contact often. Some of this change over the last seven, eight years where other editors like Bishan and Shunandini who also designs. But the decision-making process is usually us. Mm -hmm. as a very small team. It makes life easier. There's no boards to go to, it's gut instinct, it's um, trust, and so on and so forth, not just your instinct, uh, but the actual interface of what to publish. In the beginning, when we set it up and we looked for translation, I went to the authors I was familiar with. Most of them were dead. So you started with an Adorno, a Celan Bachman, a Sa, mm. a Gurdivo, an Arto, so people you knew and their unpublished material. And then I did something which your uh, radical collective would be very proud of, which is that um, I did what seemed like a very simple thing, but everybody thought it was very radical. I, <laughs> I sent off a round-robin mail to half a dozen published um, translators who had translated the initial crop and said, guys, you, hello, don't you have a wish list? What do I do next? And there was silence first, and then a floodgate because nobody asks. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to ask translators for projects. They are supposed to pitch, and you're supposed to sit back and figure out this one or that one. Mm-hmm. So that, because their years are close to the ground, they know the newer, younger writing, and I didn't. And I didn't mm-hmm. know the languages. So it was really a combination of building circles of affection as you go along. 
other publishers you worked with started to feel that, okay, so they like, it's like walking into an independent bookstore in your local whatever, and the, you know, the relationships know, and they suss out what you want, and they know how to explore your taste and extend it further with matching of their own. So that's how it happened. And I was very amenable to somebody from Zulkam picking up a phone and saying, I'm really sorry to do this to you, but this person's 28, first debut novel, probably won't sell more than 400 copies in English, but it needs to be done now. It's very vital. 14 months later, when the book was in my hands, translated, it was riveting. So normally, you're, what is the process? You would get a sampler. We do that too, occasionally. You would have any number of people reading each book. I was, we were in too much of a hurry to build a list because we came with the baggage, which is, hey, publish only for your own country. So I was playing first world publisher with third world currencies. And then my India list was guiding piggyback on it. So there was a mental map and a strategy, but a lot of it was gut instinct and trust. And now you, you know, once your initial list was growing, you could slow down, you could look for material, you could actually have it read, get a sample chapter, so and, and it snowballs. Authors guide you to other authors, which is wonderful. Yeah. And I'd like to believe that somewhere in all this are strange catalogs that you've seen played a huge ambassadorial role where on one, you know, there, there would be authors who wanted to rub shoulders with other authors in the Siegel catalog because it was like a who's who of serious literature. Um, it softened publishers because it looked the ones who understood what you mm. were about, even before they met you, was because this catalog, it had a kind of philosophy. Um, so I think what it also did was it broke barriers. Normally, different European publishers wouldn't give you access to their authors, but I had to get articles and essays and things exclusively for the catalogs. So they put me in touch. So relationships were respected. You didn't step on anybody's toes, but you had access. So you were building relationships where like Zurkamp, which is like family, and Alexander Kluger will send you a manuscript and they'll send them a manuscript. You can't read the damn thing. It's in German. But yeah, do this. And it's, <laughs> it, Enzelsberger would do that. Mm. And um, we got support of the most very generous kind where I know that often Zurkamp would say, this is too much of an offer. Maybe you can give a little less because now this estate or this, this author sees you as the principal English language publisher. Who does that? Everybody just wants to sell and get the best deal. Right. So you felt that there was a safety net. There were people, this good old theater again. You know, you just, there's a theater exercise where you just throw yourself back and there's somebody yeah. whose arms are cushioning you. So I've, I've, I found that was very interesting. Of course, there were problems. You screwed up. You failed to do many things. You know, you would, I remember we will not name names here, but there was this wonderful philosopher I grew up reading. And um, <laughs> I just heard a rumor that there's these two wonderful books and my translator, Chris, was very excited. And we paid X euros. We got the books from this lovely French publisher and we translated it. And then one day Tariq Ali wakes up, who's a dear friend, and he said, you're publishing so-and-so. I said, yes, read this, read this, read this. And suddenly there are links that are all Islamophobic. And I said, 
fiddlestick, what happens now? So I didn't hesitate more than 30 seconds. I picked up a phone. I talked to the publisher. I explained that keep the money, keep the translations. They're ready. I've paid X thousand pounds for it. I can't do it. They said, but we have to tell. I said, I will talk to the author. Mm-hmm. Because I have, if you've got Benedict Anderson and Perry Anderson and Tarikali uh, yeah. on your list and Romila Thapar at one end and Gaitri Spivak, you cannot have somebody who suddenly turns. You yeah. know, why won't you? Why won't you name uh, this name? <laughs> yeah, it, because I think it's not, it's it's not that sort of a because they're still around. I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course they're around. And they, I mean, you know, they, they, it was all handled with grace, and they accepted it. It was disappointing, of course, and then went on to publish with other people, which is fine. Yeah. What I'm trying to say is that it doesn't taint him for life or whatever. Maybe he'll find his way back, has, I don't know. But there's lots of things where you screw up in your excitement. Yeah. You want to do something, you know, in a hurry. Sure. sure. So there's, there's, there's many, you know, it's not all uh, how wonderful we are kind of thing. Yeah. I think, you know, the things that I'm hearing in this is sort of your push to build collectives, collectivities, you know, you use the word family. Um, and, you know, I can't think of a more important thing, especially, you know, at Radical Books Collective, which you helped so much in the beginning, uh, making me think through some of it. It's so much built on this idea of uh, of generating a space, generating a readership that is, you, you know, that, that with, within who, with, within which there is trust and so on. So, you know, I, I find all of this quite, quite interesting because I think of course, like the corporate publishers are just out to make the, make the buck, make uh, people famous and so on and so forth. And this is an alternative model at the end of the day. Um, you know, and in that sense, how you, have you built a readership that you would characterize very particular to you or do you feel that you're consistently reaching many different readerships or you know I think there is a politics in everything you're saying there's a politics so how do you characterize your readership how have you you brought it I think we have a very visible very close first sort of circle of readers who actually know us as we know them not necessarily intimately but intimately from the regularity with which there is feedback, the way they reach out to you, they want things, they spread the word. But the latter is probably more true in the, in the sense that you're constantly, you see, you can never ever research or know a target audience. It's not possible because I can never quite figure out, I can't start with the fact that if I put this formula into place, if this is the nature of the beast, it will reach this target and they will buy so many copies. You can't. Every book has that moment of trepidation and anxiety. Will it work? Will it not? And sometimes the ones that you didn't think would work surprise you. We know this, whether it's corporate publishing or otherwise, there's never that 100% guarantee how it's going to shape up. Mm. But it's taken us a long time. It's, um, again, it's something I've said so often, it really, um, which is that the market takes a long time to find its way to you. And it's... And it is the responsibility of the market to also do that. It cannot always be a one-way traffic. And um, and it's not enough for me to say, oh, I've patiently waited for three decades to be recognized for this, that. No, because I'm not patiently waiting. I'm actually very impatiently doing. It's the 
it's the doing, it's the constant doing in all aspects from philosophical and ideological, the practical, it's also elasticity. You do not get frozen in time. You do not become an institution which defines itself, which is why we don't have three line credos that say French list and three lines telling you what the parameters are, German list, or, no. Because anything to do with the human condition is worth publishing. If it rings a bell in small town Germany or in small town Trichur or wherever, it's the resonance. If that resonance works for six people at Seagull, it may work for 600 more and 6,000 more. And that's how you build it. And now the pandemic actually, ironically, has helped us identify these. You know, it's like um, getting rid of the chaff. You, you've got the, the readers are grouping and making themselves visible, reaching out to, there's much more activity. Your website is flourishing in a certain kind of way. So of course it's stressful. The fracturing has been vast. It's going to take the next four or five years for people to repair themselves. Notwithstanding the spurts of somebody having successfully sold X thousand copies of something, all of those things work, certain. But the truth is that the chain is fractured, right? Mm-hmm. whether it's America, England, European, there are stories of success within that. But one would think that this would create yet another community, right? Born off the pandemic, as in people who've always been around, but they reinvent themselves to yet another level of community and reach out and mm. compassion and all of those words that people are embarrassed to, you know, people actually accuse me of romance and said, oh, you're far too generous. It's like an accusation often. And I'm saying, <laughs> I'm just being normal. You want people to reach out to you. It's like I like being picked up at airports. So if Bhakti's landing at 3 a.m., I'll pick her up because I know that it's important <laughs> to have a known face at the other. It's as simple as that. So it's not some right. altruistic, whatever. But romance is a good thing too. So you... Yeah, I, I think it's all a state of just just being and doing things. You stop doing, you're in Dodo land. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I see what you're saying. You're not doing it to become somebody, but it's just the way you think things should be done. Mm. I understand. Um, here's a here's a question. Uh, you know, potentially, I'm sure you get this asked a lot. But for younger publishers, for people like me who are who have one one foot in there somewhat. Um, so how have things changed with the coming of digital publishing and our great World Wide Web and the Internet? And then along with it, you have the behemoths, you know, like Amazon and so on, mm-hmm. which have, as we know, changed book publishing forever. At least we're hearing that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. What, what, you know, how have you met these challenges? Yeah. I think that's a very sensible way of putting it because the reason I use the word sensible or sensitive is because Mm -hmm. I've had years of being, you know, questions coming at me where there's a, are you threatened? Is there fear? Are you afraid of the electronic? And I'm saying, but no, it's one more typewriter in the sense that from day one, because we used technology first, I use technology to teach myself design since I can't draw. And then it was taken up 500% by Ashunandari, who walks in straight out of university as a rookie and then takes design to a level where people used to tell us you have a sensibility in India and 
you have a different sensibility for a cover in America and this one in Japan. And with her, it's universal. Every design works everywhere else. So there was a lot of all this happening and we were using what? The technology. So how are you going to be afraid of the what it spawns? Mm-hmm. So the, the, the electronic from day one, we took to it. We did e-books. We did them a few dollars less, literally. And now we're just launching in our 40th year. In fact, the first three are up. Seal and Bachman letters, Ransomeyer's Cox, Rene Shah's Hypnos, audiobooks. Not because we think any of this is going to bring huge revenues. The ebook slowly is getting better through these last two years. But that's also because of certain kinds of institutional sales that have gone up and so on and so forth, right? Yeah. Some, because we, when I say us, it's uniquely different from the more popular kind of fiction that you want to carry for a vacation, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the kind of person that would carry the books I do for a vacation wants to actually like me. If I go to Bombay for three days, I carry 18 books. You know, I mean, not that I'm reading all 18 books. I just like to set them up at the hotel. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and the last time I did that, I do that for comfort. It's like you set your clothes, you set your table. And I had the most touching moment when I came back after two hours with whoever did the room service had put 18 bookmarks. One in each of what? them. What? A gesture, yes. <laughs> oh I rang up God. and thanked them. They said, no, we, we couldn't put it in one. It didn't seem right. And we thought you loved books, so we put them in all 18. Oh, so, my you know. gosh. How beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, but uh, to get back to this, you know, it's, um, so the electronic has had its ups and downs, but it's, we went through a lot of things. There was a phase, when I say we, I mean the publishing community, there was a place and time when, say, all the reprints that, say, crime novels, Dorothy Says or Marjorie Lingham, lovely covers, shitty insides, right? Terrible paper, reprinted, reprinted, thick and type. Suddenly that changed. Everything went boutique because people realized people want quality of tactility and printing, paper yeah. and design. We stayed steadfast to that, saying that, okay, so let us assume the death of the book at one point, but the death of writing is not imminent. Surfaces will change. I've said this often to school audience, you know, kids that we talk to, that your great-grandchildren will have different surfaces, touch and feel, but you and I will be writing. So don't, f- that is clutter. Don't get sidetracked. Go with it. But keep doing what you want to, even if it becomes boutique. And I think it's now become more than boutique. It's gone the other way. People are wanting to produce good-looking books. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. So I don't think that it's one or the other. I mean, even, say, for example, somebody like our mutual friend, Colin Robinson. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the whole premise on which all books was formed in a certain kind of way, where he was breaking the chain of distribution high discounts, etc., reinvesting that into, you know, spending on the net. When the book gets, gets popular, you print an edition. So you're doing it the other way around. So there are different ways people were using the electronic. And now in the pandemic, it became reaching out. I mean, there are, there are both good, bad, indifferent sides to the way you use that knowledge that technology offers you. Mm-hmm. But I think being fearful for that reason is wrong. You have other things why the net should become a huge fearful thing. We're all being watched. We know this. We know this for decades. Yeah. So that's a different kind of fear. But as far as book 
publishing goes, they need to work with each other. You use the same technology to your advantage because eventually what is it that you are? You are, you know, uh, midwives or conduits or whatever as publishers in a particular time and place, somebody's creativity finds its way through you into somebody else's hunger and it dovetails and you make that possible. If you weren't there, somebody else would fill that slot. Yeah. Right. And therefore everything should be a tool that doesn't need, you don't need to, you get to have to get to use the tool, right? So in the beginning, you might feel that it's going to jump in your hand or cut your fingers or whatever, but you can even choose to only use the tool and not do anything with the object and the book, sure. and so on, which is fine too. Some people have tried that and gone back to it, not to prove a point, but the fact is that it is a back and forth when you're experimenting with new things. Now it's settled down into a, a kind of almost seesaw balance. You know, some people achieve it, some a little more off the digital and so on and so forth. Um, within the digital itself, there's lots of people playing around, of course, with, you know, there's all the augmented reality stuff. There's all the game stuff, all of which can be linked to books in the nicest possible way. And reinvention, ironically, is a very old fashioned European concept where the rights manager what is a rights manager? A rights manager is a kind of, is what eventually would become a literary agent kind of life mm-hmm. or a scout kind of life. Rights managers are keepers of the archive, the Brecht estate, the Adorno estate, the Frisch estate. Right. And all they do is they reinvent, keep everything alive, keep this alive. Why is this dying? Why is this not getting a new series? Why is this not being invented into an audio? Why is this not a graphic novel. Can this be a performance? That's what you do. You do not let your authors, live or dead, ever feel they're in a morgue. You know, that's not the way it works. So, yeah. Sorry, I'm rabbiting on. No, that's Asking great. A question. <laughs> uh, I had to. I had an advice question. I know you've given plenty of that sort mm. of uh, advice or wisdom from all your years of doing this. Um, but you know, I mean, what would have to change in a way to synthesize some of the things you've been saying, what would have to change for independent, radical, non-corporate publishing to thrive? Not, not, I don't want to be the one changing it alone, right? What would have to change in the structure, in the system for, for us to have more of that? I think it's it's not easy. I don't have an answer that will give you a sort of um, mm-hmm. one or two or even a six-line answer that says, if we did this, 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 we would all be right. wonderful. I think what has to happen is that we have to keep attempting to work with each other. I don't think we do that enough. Mm-hmm. Different cultures, different nations. It could be something simple. You could be a bunch of rights managers sitting in, France, meeting everybody every six weeks and discussing people you deal with outside your nation, are they to be trusted, not to be trusted, exchanging notes. Nations like India don't exchange notes. Or you could be wonderful American booksellers who work with each other, whether it's City Lights or Seattle, Elliott Bay Book Company or Jeff's uh, Seminary Co-op, that kind of cooperation. They work with publishers. Um, Somehow, I'm now realizing that it's pointless getting frustrated trying to play community community. You just practice it. And whoever participates in it 
So you help and reach out to people. In the pandemic, for example, you were launching your great history novel in the middle of darkness. There's no <laughs> bookstores open, your publisher's doing it online. So I reach out because I admire you. You are somebody else's author, but I admire your writing. You don't even know me. And I say, here's 32,000 names. Get your publisher to do an emailer. We'll send mm-hmm. it out. It's a small gesture. It's symbolic. It may result in 16 books sold or eight or 160. We don't know. Yeah. But this hesitation, it's met with gratitude at the author level, but the publisher initially is hesitant because they don't know where the sting is coming from. Yeah. Why is this person? But one multiplies this. I reach out to somebody sitting in America and independent like Spurl Books. I just love what they do. I envy what they do. They're six or eight or 10 or 12 books. So I reach out. They take it with great confidence and they reciprocate. So it really is a whole thing. So be happy with the ones that want to be part of that so-called reaching out and work together. I mean, someone like Laszlo Krasnaharkai, for example, I would never have published his nonfiction book, the one that we did. He was reached out to by George, who was a sales rep with Chicago and said, look at these books. You have to publish with him. He reached out to his publisher, Barbara Epler, and I have the letter with me. She endorsed it beautifully, saying, Naveen publishes beautiful books. We are doing the fiction. You do this. <laughs> you know, so I'm saying, you know, often you let go. I used to have, a, you know, this every Frankfurt, we would have the wonderful John Donatich of Yale University Press coming and saying, you're always getting to these French and half jokingly, the publishers just before I get there and you take this book. I said, all you have to do is ring me up and say, David, I want that book. <laughs> because, you, you know, yeah. so, because the thing is, you can't do everything. Yeah. And you can't stop your admiration of other publishers. How can you? True. I mean, even if you have to perform the opposite, because of, no. Yeah, yeah. Because it's the one profession that really has the room for the cutthroat. Even the multinationals, you don't really... I mean, of course, authors will shift in the city, but it's not like advertising in the 70s that everybody was jumping ship and people were getting poached and all this nonsense. I, I, I think it's, a, it's, it's the one community that can yeah. uh, work together. Yeah. This is all very spiritual advice as well, you know? Is it? It, it, it sounds like this. Naveen Baba, <laughs> you're going to get followers. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Just kidding. But, you know, I mean, you're speaking about generosity and like, uh, you know, holding the olive branch for things. And I've been weirdly, it's fun for me to hear this a little bit because I've been in uh, this is the last two or three days. Uh, I've just been in strange semi email quarrels with people who are like, sorry, oh. we won't get on your list of uh, Radical Books Collective. Uh, because we just want to decline. And I'm like, but I just helped you with 10 things. Why? You know, Mm. so, so part of me is, of course, selfishly saying, I helped you, you should help me back. Uh, Mm. But I should also chill. And uh, people should also uh, not not be that way. You know, I think we should all work together. I agree. So no, I think it's very difficult to it's not a simple thing, what you just said, because it's so you know, I face the opposite, which is it takes 24 years for friends to trust you. And I say friends, I mean, other publishers who, because mm-hmm. you're doing exactly what you're saying, except that one is not calling in debit and credit. 
you just want empathy and trust. That's it. You don't mm -hmm. always, because it's hard to explain that your joy may be coming from doing what you're doing, right? Because it sounds old fashioned. Yeah. And not quite the times and, you know, it's embarrassing and all the rest of it. But my point is that take people at face value. So if Bhakti is offering me something, I have no qualms about the fact that I don't have to reciprocate in the sense that I'm not obliged. We must not inflict obligations on people. So if you're doing some 10 things for somebody, then just do them because that's it. That's you. Yeah, I know. That's it, right? I know. Or spell it out in the beginning. Hello, Naveen, I'm going to do 10 things for you. But after this, I would request you to do this. That's a different transaction. Yes. But so... So, uh, but through all of this wonderful talk, it hurts like hell. I know. I totally believe that. It just feels, <laughs> you feel hugely let down. I want reciprocation like, right away. <laughs> I'm just. Yeah, but you want reciprocation conditionally, which means they have to not be told. They have to understand it automatically. I know. Face saving is very important. You know, it's like if somebody wants something from you, you need to be able to have the instinct to preempt it before they go through that difficult thing. I call it paying your dues. I've yeah. published a lot of authors who come to me at a certain stage in life with their book of photographs. And I just do a quick mental math and I say, this person should be saved the embarrassment, the indignity of going to 10 publishers. Do it. <laughs> but that's, I mean, it's okay. It's not that I spend my whole life doing that. There may be three such things. Yeah. But it's important. You have to recognize that certain people may not in your world but in their world have paid their dues yeah. but it doesn't happen you know i have a history of rejections before i got knotted grief done so no is this true it is it's true in the sense that i mean one would think that world's second best publisher will you know be able to uh publish very Make easily some phone calls <laughs> no it doesn't happen <laughs> <laughs> doesn't happen like that. And you can't publish your own drivel, like you can't show your own photographs. I know. I discovered. Mm -hmm. So, but it was fun when it happened, and now it's happening in all these languages. So, anyway. Yeah, so, yeah. Anyway. I'm going to play a game of threes. Give me three. Oh uh, God. Three publishers that you just absolutely love. We must go and buy all their books. New directions. Uh, mm hmm. Straight well, away, Dolky, Fitzcarraldo. Dolky Archive, New Directions, and? Fitzcarraldo. Okay, nice. The lovely blues and whites, very terrific stuff. Yeah, Gorgeous. Brilliant. And then three of your radical I mean, I have 30 writers. more. <laughs> I know, no, you have, you have to stop right there. Uh, um, three titles, only three titles, radical titles because you know what we do at the radical books collective we have a sort of mm -hmm. loose ongoing definition mm -hmm. of radical oh uh, i can give you three authors i can't give you books because i there too much of that you know i mean okay three seagull titles i wanted oh you wanted three seagull titles yeah only seagull oh, oh that that that's very easy there's two straight away that you'd already know which is blind spot and shades of black Okay. And there's a absolutely the most, it's a very unusual radical book because it's actually about travel. It's when somebody asks me, so what is that one book you've done in your 950 books that you think is the best book? Uh, now I have an answer for the last five years. It's called Atlas of an Anxious Man. It's by the great, wonderful Austrian German writer, Christoph Ransmeyer. You have to read it. Okay. I have not. But 
Yeah, but you know, these the trouble with threes is it leaves out the other zeros. Okay, one more. Give me one. <laughs> one more. We'll play the game of four. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, another seagull title, when René Char's Hypnos, which is okay. a series of short resistance decks, which we've just done as an audiobook too. Beautiful. Okay. And uh, yeah, so, uh, and all of Elfride Jelinek, I mean, we did this wonderful Royal Road thing, which uh, the, the book which uh, we thought would out-trump Trump, it was the kind of takeoff on Trump mm-hmm. the Clown. But of okay. course, he seems to be having the last laugh, but anyway... <laughs> That often happens. But thank you so much. This was an extraordinary conversation and I've learned so much. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. I hope I didn't ramble too much. No, you did not. 